Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, did you hear about the squirrels in Queens, New York, who are jumping on residents and biting them? Okay. One woman claims she was wrestling in the snow with the squirrel, and the squirrel bit her fingers and hand and refused to let go. She states... We're wrestling in the snow, and there's blood everywhere, and my fingers get chewed, and it won't let go. She goes on. Eventually just stopped, and there I was, a bloody mess. This was an MMA cage match, and I lost. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) And this woman shows a photo of a snowy pathway covered in blood. Sounds a little funny, doesn't it? Yeah. But maybe she's just a funny woman. But I will tell you that a few of her neighbors are also complaining that either a single rogue squirrel or a pack of squirrels jumped on them or have attempted to climb up their legs. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) Did you ever see the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds? Oh, yeah. You know the classic scene in the movie where birds are attacking the people in the town? Yeah. Do you know how... Squirrels. The squirrels, exactly. Who could do that? I know. Spielberg? Um, Tarantino? Oh, wow. (laughs) Who did Snakes on a Plane? Whoever did that could do the squirrels. The squirrels. (laughs) Climbing up your legs. (laughs) Jumping on your face. Do you know how Hitchcock thought of the idea? No. It's been said in 1961, environmentalists discovered a type of marine algae that became toxic. And this toxic algae affected the birds off the coast of California where the movie was set. And just around the time, hundreds of sick birds began to drop off from the sky and act disoriented and ramming into people's homes. Do you think animals were harmed in the making of the movie, The Birds? I don't know. You better believe it. Oh. Most of the birds used in the movie were wild-caught seagulls, wild-caught seagulls, crows, ravens, and sparrows. Of course, there were bird handlers on the set, but I've read they did some not-so-nice things to the birds during the filming. Like, I read in some scenes they tied the beaks of the birds shut with wire so the actors wouldn't get hurt. And, of course, you know, Tippi Hedren was one of the leading stars in the movie. In her memoir, Tippi talks about her relationship with Alfred Hitchcock and what it was like working with him. And there was some accusations of sorts. Anyway... Tippi Hedren recounts filming the infamous bedroom scene where her character Melanie goes upstairs into a bedroom and birds just start viciously attacking her. Do you remember that scene? I don't remember that one. Hedren says in her memoirs that Hitchcock had promised her they'd use mechanical birds, but on the day they started shooting the bedroom scene, the assistant director told Tippi that, quote, the mechanical birds aren't working, so we're going to have to use live ones. Yeah. She writes in her memoir, it took me several seconds to pick my jaw up off the floor. They were using live birds for this final apocalyptic scene. I trusted the expertise of our trainer, Ray Berwick, 100%, but not even the greatest trainer in the world could control every move an animal makes, especially when it's under stress. Resigned and determined, I finished getting ready and walked out on the set to find a cage built around the bedroom door. All around the inside of the cage were huge cartons of ravens, doves, and a few pigeons. I refused to look at Hitchcock as I crossed the set to my mark inside the door and braced myself for whatever was in store for me. I heard Hitchcock yell, action! 
And right on cue, the handlers began hurling those live birds at me. It was brutal and ugly and relentless. Can you believe that? That's amazing. She also explains that on the final day of shooting the bedroom scene, the feet of live birds were tied to Hedron's dress while she was lying on the floor. And then she says when Hitchcock called action, birds that were tied to her started pecking her and the handlers again threw live birds directly at her. She writes, I was pelted with still more live, screaming, frantic birds while the birds that were tied to me began pecking me as they'd been trained to do. I was too focused on my own survival to notice, but I was told later that it was even more horrifying and heartbreaking for the crew to watch than the previous four days had been. And there wasn't a thing anyone but Hitchcock could do to put a stop to it. She also talks about a bird that was tied to her shoulder during a particular scene who had pecked Hedron very close to her eye. Yeah, the eye thing doesn't surprise me. And uh, I don't think there was ever any mechanical birds. What do you think? No, there no, wasn't. that's a little fib. Do you remember I had the pleasure of speaking with Tippi Hedron on Animals Today? Yes. She, she didn't mention this, though. No, this she was, did not. It's crazy. When was that? When was she on the show? Oh, quite a what, 2012 or 13? Yeah. Yeah, she's a sweetheart. We, we talked about her preserve or her animal sanctuary. Shambhala. Sh- I know. I pronounced it wrong during the interview. And I pronounced it wrong. <laughs> Shambhala, Shambhala, the Shambhala Preserve, right? Yes, yes. Anyway, this is a sanctuary for large cats, lions, tigers, cougars, bobcats, leopards, who were privately owned or they came from roadside zoos. You know, cats that have been terribly neglected, exploited, and abused. And of course, the mission of her preserve is to educate the public about the dangers of private ownership of exotic animals. Anyway, back to the jumping and biting squirrels in Queens, New York. Yeah, let's get back to them, the wrestling (laughs) squirrels. (laughs) Did you think I was going to come back to this? Mm -hmm. The city's Department of Health advised the neighbors who are complaining of an aggressive squirrel biting them to hire a licensed trapper, but no squirrels have been captured yet. Could the squirrels be rabid? Perhaps. It's actually pretty rare for squirrels to carry rabies, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Their website states small mammals such as squirrels, rats, mice, hamsters, guinea pigs, gerbils, chipmunks, rabbits, and hares are almost never found to be infected with rabies and have not been known to cause rabies among humans in the United States. Good response from the government agency uh, instead of sending out their expert, oh, go hire someone yourself. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And in response to the news about squirrels and queens becoming aggressive towards some humans, the humane side of the United States released this following statement. According to Brian Shapiro, New York State Director for the Humane Society of the United States, he says, it is frightening to be the recipient of aggressive behavior from a squirrel, our most common wild neighbor. However, these incidents are rare and usually result of squirrels associating humans with the food reward. Human supplied food alters their normal behavior into one of reliance, expectation, and confrontation for food when they encounter us. Conflicts between people and wildlife mainly arise when we fail to respect each other's boundaries. The best way to resolve the problem 
is simply the public must stop feeding squirrels by hand. If we stop feeding wildlife and leave them alone, they will leave us alone. They do not need human treats to survive. They do just fine on their own. He goes on. Historically, the few uncommon localized incidents where this has happened were easily resolved by educating residents who cultivated the behavior. People have good intentions when they feed animals, but it ultimately results in harmful outcomes for both squirrels and humans. It's best to appreciate these animals from afar. Here's some facts about squirrels. Okay. Squirrels, like other wild animals, generally keep their distance from people. Their natural behavior consists of finding safe shelter and foraging for nuts and other plant material that make up their diet. Squirrels can contract rabies as any mammal can, but there's never been a documented case of transmission of rabies from squirrel to human. Feeding wildlife causes them to lose their natural fear of humans. Any rare aggressive incident that has occurred is almost always a result of squirrels associating humans with food reward. These occurrences can be prevented by respecting and appreciating wildlife from a distance. If people want to feed squirrels, it must be done from an appropriate feeder, never by hand. Squirrels have sharp teeth and can mistake your hand or anything you're carrying for food if you try to pet them or feed them by hand. So people must respect their presence of urban wildlife and do their best to keep a respectful distance. The Humane Society of the United States works with community leaders and animal care and control agencies across the country about the important role wildlife serves in our communities and encourages non-lethal approaches for addressing conflicts between people and wildlife. The Humane Society of the United States Human Wildlife Conflict Resolution Guide helps communities establish sound, humane solutions to issues with wildlife. Yeah, sounds good, Lori. Okay, you just learned about squirrels. <laughs> And aggressive squirrels. Yeah, wrestling squirrels. Okay, please don't go away. More with animals today right after the break. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about leeches. Over the millennia, leeches have been used to treat various human maladies. Yes, leeches. These lowly worm-like bloodsuckers were depicted being used as far back as in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Hippocrates used leeches, but bloodletting by means of leech was really popularized by Galen and was widely used in ancient Rome. This was a time when illness was thought to be from an imbalance of the four humors, blood, phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile, and typically too much blood was implicated. Leeches were perfect for bloodletting and rebalancing those humors. Even through the 1800s, leeches were used for bloodletting in Western medicine. But in modern times, leeches do have a genuine medical use, and in 2004, the use of medicinal leeches, they're actually called Herudo medicinalis, as a medical device, was given approval by the FDA. It turns out that they can be quite helpful in aiding the successful surgical reattachment of severed fingers. After the finger is reattached and arterial blood flow is established, the finger gets congested with blood because the veins are not re-sewn. The pressure in the tissue can get so high as to cause clotting and death of the severed digit. These medicinal leeches placed on the site will latch on and suck the blood out for 40 minutes or so, acting as a temporary venous drainage system. And after they let go, the anticoagulant from their salivary glands remains effective for hours, so a bit of bleeding from the bite persists, which is a good thing. Then, after days, when enough small veins have grown in the finger, the leech treatments can stop. Interestingly, the anticoagulant is called hirudin and is used in a few medicines today due to its potency. 
Now, if you discover a leech or two on your skin while walking in a rainforest or swimming in a pond inhabited by them, try not to panic. First, look all over your body to know just how many you have. Then, remove them by breaking their suction with the edge of a knife or credit card or a fingernail so they fall off. But don't squeeze them or burn them. Infection is rare, but monitor the wounds closely. And that is your Animals Today Minute for today. For more than 60 years, the International Society for Animal Rights has been consistently fighting the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and advancing animal rights and law. ISAR is committed to saving animals' lives through ISAR's annual Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. To learn more about ISAR's programs, please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. This is Dr. Lori with your Animals Today Minute featuring one of my favorites, the cheetah. December 4th is International Cheetah Day, and unfortunately they are Africa's most endangered big cat, with only about 10,000 remaining in the wild. These speedy carnivores can reach 70 miles per hour as they hunt their preferred prey, small antelopes. Cheetahs use their long, muscular tail like a rudder and stabilizer permitting quick turns at high speeds. Cheetahs have about 2,000 small round spots, each animal with its unique pattern, which allows observers and scientists to identify them. Their characteristic dark tear streaks are thought to aid their vision by reducing glare. And that's this week's Animals Today Minute. Welcome back to the show. According to the CDC, 22.5% of people in the U.S. have been infected with toxoplasmosis. Yet many or most of these people are unaware that they've had the infection. As you might know, cats also harbor toxoplasma, and they are the definitive host of this parasite. What do we need to know about toxoplasmosis? Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the show Dr. Robert Reed, who is medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to talk to you again. Robert, what is toxoplasmosis? Well, it's, you know, toxoplasmosis is, for the significance of the disease, is surprisingly little known by people, even though so many people have cats and love cats, and it is so closely associated with cats. It's a disease caused by a protozoan parasite, microscopic, called Toxoplasma gondii. And it's significant with regard to cats because cats are the only definitive host for toxoplasma which means they're the only animals that can harbor and produce the infective form of the parasite. Okay, so explain what happens when a cat gets infected with toxoplasmosis, and how do they get the infection anyway? The cats will acquire the infection by ingesting an animal that's infected with it or by eating raw meat that may have toxoplasma insisted in the muscle of the animal. And when a cat eats the, the organism in one of its prey, it, uh, the organism develops in the intestine into a form. It creates, it creates eggs and passes into the stool in the environment. And once in the environment, those eggs, after a day or two, become infective to anything that ingests them. That's usually a small animal, small mammal, like a mouse, but it could be uh, a bird, it could be uh, a cow or a goat or anything that's grazing on the ground. Um, and later, if another cat eats the small animal, 
or is fed meat from a larger animal that's not been cooked, then they can develop the infection as well. Do you treat cats for toxoplasmosis? Yeah, most of the time you don't even know they have it. It's pretty unusual for a cat to have symptoms that you would notice about it uh, from toxoplasma. They sometimes will get a little bit lethargic, might get a little fever, maybe a little diarrhea, go off their food for a few days. But most of the time, it's not even recognized as a disease in cats, even though it has a treatment with an antibiotic. Um, Interestingly, though, occasionally a cat will get pneumonia or some other respiratory disease or eye problems or neurologic problems as a result of toxoplasma. But you normally wouldn't test for those things unless the cat had an unusual symptom that you couldn't find another cause for. So it often passes unnoticed in the cat, and by the time the cat is recognized as having had toxoplasma, the eggs have already passed out of them into the environment. Let's talk about infections in people. How do people get toxoplasmosis, and who is at risk for problems related to toxoplasmosis? That's a really good question, because as you mentioned, there are an awful lot of people that have been infected with toxoplasma. But there's not really any correlation in studies that have been performed between people who own cats and people who have toxoplasma. Even though cats are often recognized as being associated with toxoplasma, and in fact, many times blamed for it, it's really rare for a person to get toxoplasma from a cat. Most of the time, they're gonna get it from eating undercooked meat or drinking unpasteurized milk possibly eating vegetables or fruit that have not been washed properly, sometimes from digging in soil and then um, putting their hands in their mouth before they wash them thoroughly. What precautions, if any, should people take related to cats and toxoplasmosis risk? Well, the first thing, of course, is as many people probably do know and where they would have heard from to- of toxoplasma is because it's the parasite, the, the disease of cats that pregnant women are warned about. Right. Because at certain stages of pregnancy, if a person is, is exposed to toxoplasma for the first time, never having had it before, then there's the potential for their developing uh, fetus to be affected by the organism. And um, that's why people are often cautioned not to change litter boxes or handle cat stool during pregnancy. Um, The risk is small, but it is a general recommendation to avoid, if a person is pregnant, to avoid handling uh, the litter box or maintaining the litter box. But for the most part, there's not really any risk in having a cat if a person is pregnant or uh, more likely if they're Uh, subjected to some sort of immunosuppressive condition that makes their immune system more vulnerable. Most of the time, if you avoid basic um, hygiene in in terms of food preparation and proper cooking of meat, not allowing cats to eat raw meat, or if possible, not allowing them to hunt so that they have an opportunity to to pick up toxoplasma, you can actually avoid it very easily. Um, And many times people when they learn of some of the severity and the risks, um, overreact to it. When in reality, even though it's a significant disease, it is preventable very easily. And I want to emphasize what you said earlier. People who live with cats don't necessarily get infected with toxoplasmosis more often than those without cats, correct? That is true. That's what studies have shown. Any last comments for my listeners? 
Well, you know, there are a few things that I would want people to to, no, to take note of when they're thinking about toxoplasma. You know, one of the things as we discussed is cats are the definitive host. So they're the only ones that can produce the infected form. And lots of people do get toxoplasma, but generally not from cats. And although cats um, are the only ones that can get it, people get it from other sources that have to do with their own personal habits more than having the cat. And no one should shy away from having a cat simply because they have a health condition or pregnancy that, um, that requires them to take extra precautions because simple precautions can help them avoid the risk and they still get the benefit of having that companionship that you get from a cat. Veterinarian Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. Vitacraft understands what cats are really into, and that includes their best-selling Lick and Lap line with three irresistible textures, each offered in two tasty flavors, chicken and salmon. The popular line includes classic and creamy Lick and Lap snacks, new Lick and Lap smooth jelly with a gelatin texture, and new Lick and Lap meaty gravy with chunks of real meat. Packaged in single-serving squeeze tubes specifically designed for hand-feeding, Vitacraft's Lick and Lap is the best way to train and bond with your furry friend. Every day in our community, countless animals are starved, beaten, and abused by people. And sadly, most of these cases go unreported, and the abusers get away with it. And in many cases, someone knew about the abuse, but did not report it. So if you see someone hurting an animal, or even if you just suspect something, call the police or animal control right away. Animal abuse does not just mean physically abusing an animal. Neglecting animals can be just as bad. So if you see your neighbor's dog being underfed, left without water, or tied up in the backyard without protection from the elements, it is important to report that too. In many cases, you don't even have to give your name, and your phone call may save an animal's life. Also, we know that many violent and abusive adults got their start by first abusing animals. It's true, people who harm animals often turn their violence against other people, and that is a cycle we need to break. Remember, animals can't speak out for themselves, so reporting animal abuse can save lives. This message is presented by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back. Bob Ferber is back with us. Hi, Bob. Hi, Peter. Thank you for having me. Okay, we wanted to talk about this uh, horrible episode of uh, dogs and cats being uh, killed and sickened. It's reported that an aflatoxin outbreak deriving from Midwestern pet foods uh, has harmed and killed many, more than 100 dogs and cats around the country. And... uh, this happens once in a while. Aflatoxin comes from Aspergillus, and uh, it can infect corn and grains. And dogs and cats are very susceptible uh, to this, and unfortunately this outbreak has happened. FDA is investigating. The numbers are continue to rise. And uh, 
it's really a tragedy. And we wonder, Lori and I were chatting about this, you know, what recourse does a pet owner have if their pet is uh, harmed or dies because of this? That's one question we have for you. And then how would you go about establishing that? I mean, we know about the problems of damages and about dogs and cats being considered as a mere property, but how would you go about even establishing your belief that your animal was harmed to uh, satisfy the law? So many questions this raises. What do you think the important or notable legal questions are related to an outbreak like this? Well, you know, one of the first responses that anybody has if their animal suffers from bad food or tragically dies is, uh, you know, what can I do? What can I do to literally punish the people that allowed this to happen and to make sure it doesn't happen again. And legally, the short answer, Peter, is there's not much you can do at this point. This is called product uh, liability. That's the field of law. We're a product where somebody who has a product, whether it's a television, a medical device, or food, or anything where the product is defective or in some way that either damages the product or in the case of food or a medical device like us an implant if it's done improperly then if it's manufactured improperly or then you have potentially a product liability lawsuit the laws on product liability uh, are very extensive but it's it's you can simplify it or sum it up pretty much as this Did the manufacturer of the food or the medical device, did they follow established procedures? Mm -hmm. Did they do everything that was considered reasonable? And did did this incident happen, like in the case of the food? Were they following established legal procedures for preparing the dog food, or did they deviate it? Does the the FDA uh, require that you test the food with several that each you know batch of food is tested in a laboratory or the ingredients are there standards for the ingredients that were followed what was not done that was supposed to be done and the government is the one that sets the standards for this so it's a matter of finding you know if my animal suffered and died because of tainted or poisoning in the food did the manufacturer do anything wrong? So we have to look at what does the government require uh, of food manufacturers? And the really pathetic answer is not much. We've had a history in this country of foods that were tainted. Uh, one of the most infamous instances was of melamine, which is a actually a manufacturing product. It's a form of a plastic that's used in construction. And it was discovered after countless animals died, thousands of animals, as I recall, died in this country, that Chinese manufacturers were putting melamine, which is literally like a, it's a construction material, yeah. into the food. And it's the way the melamine is designed, it fooled some of the instruments that it mimicked a form of protein, so that it actually was boosting the protein content. And from what we know, the manufacturers in China knew damn well mm-hmm. that they were putting a dangerous product in, and it was fooling people and customers into thinking that they had a, 
a dog food that had a good amount of protein. Uh, that actually changed the, the whole way the world looked at dog food and cat food coming from China. And actually, China, the government reacted very strongly to that because they lost a lot of business. And to this day, many people, if not most animal lovers, will look to see, well, to make sure it didn't come from China. And that was about 20 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, that was about 20 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, and, and in fact, as a response about to that, in 2007... Uh, the government required melamine testing in baby food. Oh, wow. Uh, because it was coming, it was actually in baby food also. But unbelievably, they didn't require it for pet food. So to this day, there is no testing of whether melamine is in your animal food. And, uh, you know, we could, of course, do a whole separate show on labeling of animal foods when something says that you're that uh, your product was manufactured in the United States, that doesn't mean that all the ingredients came from the United States. Right. The ingredients, uh, one of the things that happened after the melamine incident was Thailand and other surrounding Asian countries were being used to provide the ingredients. And so people were had a false sense of security that, well, it's not coming from China. Well, Whatever Thailand was using, there's no way of knowing that what Thailand was giving you wasn't coming from China. In fact, there is no tracking system to speak of to know the ingredients in your pet food, where those ingredients came from. If it says, you know, organic chicken or just chicken is the main ingredient and you want that as the main ingredient, do you know where those chickens came from? Do you know where the food came from that was fed to the chickens? Uh, All the vitamin supplements, the other parts of it, the vegetables, did they come from Mexico? Did they come from another country? And did that country get it from another country? And each of those countries each has their own standards or may I say substandards for testing so that when something you'll many of your listeners can look on a can or of their food and it'll say manufactured in the United States that just means that all the stuff was put together in a factory somewhere in the United States but there's no assurance where the ingredients came from and the sad thing is the federal government isn't requiring any testing. Now, what the federal government has relied on is a really terrible system. It relies on waiting for animals to die before looking into it. Whereas, in, you know, we've had outbreaks of, of E. coli and other and salmonella in people food. And usually it's traced to where the manufacturers failed to identify it during a process, a testing. But they were looking for it. And that's why most of the food that we eat is, is safe and doesn't have these bacteria because there's a testing going on during the uh, the manufacturing process of putting the food and packaging it. But with animals, no. Yeah. The government says, we're not going to require that. We're going to wait till your animal dies, and then you tell us about that, and then we'll look into it. And in fact, uh, in 2007, the uh, Food and Drug Ad- Administration Amendments Act, that was a law that was passed by Congress, called for the FDA to make several changes as a result of the melamine scandal. One of them was, first of all, to improve 
the reporting. There's no mandatory reporting of, you know, if you tell PetSmart that you bought a can of food and your animal is throwing up, uh, that's not going to go anywhere. They're going to be, well, we'll give you another can of food. Uh, Some veterinarians will report it, some won't. Uh, There's no uniform system for reporting what animals are sick or die, which is why, Peter, these things are usually discovered after hundreds or maybe thousands of animals have died, and then the government says, well, maybe we should look into it. So it was a recommendation that that be improved, and it did get improved. This is the good news. There was a there's a better a, a better reporting system. After the animals die, that was step one. But they also recommended that uh, the standards be better, that in food ingredient definitions and the standard quality be improved. That was not uh, done. So, you know, as many informed listeners know, something that says there's a certain ingredient, is it a quality ingredient? Is it garbage? Is it something that you would never serve to any human or animal? Was, is it tainted? You know, you don't know. You can only say that, oh, it has this ingredient, but you don't know anything about it. And that law told the FDA to change that, and they didn't. It also called for a third thing, much better labeling and detailed information for the consumer. And again, not only did they not improve the definitions and the quality of the ingredients, they didn't do anything to change the labeling. So consumers right now, Peter, are at a loss as to they're very limited in their ability to uh, know what's a good food. So we're relying on the FDA, which has not done their job, to provide more protection for the consumer. And the consumer is really at a loss to know whether the ingredients that they're in their, their can of dog or cat food is quality ingredients. And by the way, Peter, this doesn't matter whether it's the best quality food that you can find on the market, the most expensive, the brand name that is you think is this is the best, uh, you can't know. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a, a lower-grade food found on the bottom shelf in the market or it's the premium, most expensive food in a pet supply place... Consumers have no way of knowing at this point whether the food they're giving their animals is really safe. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Okay, thanks for the lesson and the tough news, Bob. This is Dr. Peter Spiegel, and I want to thank you for joining us on Animals Today. Each week, we explore the wide variety of new and important issues concerning the welfare and rights of animals, how people treat them, and where they fit in society. From whale protectors risking their own lives on the open seas, to lawmakers fighting to pass legislation to assist animals, to kids volunteering at their local shelter, Animals Today provides timely and in-depth analysis and interviews with experts and advocates from around the world. To listen, join us every week on this station, listen on Apple Podcasts, or go to animalstodayradio.com, where you can access and listen to all the prior shows. And like us on Facebook and share your views. Much of our financial support comes from the nonprofit group Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. So check them out. This is Peter, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to Animals Today. Well, September is Save the Koala Month. You know what that means, Peter, right? It's Save the Koala Month. 
Pop quiz. Oh, yes. Did you have any classes where your teachers would spring a pop quiz on you? Oh, my goodness. In Spanish class, in like in eighth grade, it was just a nightmare. The and you know what? Wait, wait. They yeah. would say, okay, does anyone have any questions? Okay, no questions. Okay, pop quiz. You must all know the material, right? I hate when they did that. Were you prepared? It was just terror. It was just not fair. That, that sick feeling in your stomach. Uh, I had a math teacher that would give us a pop quiz once a week, but we wouldn't know which day of the week it would be, so we would just always have to be prepared. That's terrible. That's what gives you ulcers. <laughs> okay, so koalas. Okay. True or false? Koala bears are a type of bear. Oh, that's a funny question. I don't think they're bears. That's correct. It is false. They are not bears, and they are not even related to bears. They get their name koala bear because they sort of look like teddy bears. Mm -hmm. True or false, koalas are marsupial mammals. That's true. Yes, that is true. Marsupial meaning they carry their babies in pouches like kangaroos and opossums. A newborn koala baby is called what? A joey. Very good. Yes. This little joey is less than an inch in length, lives in the mother's pouch for about six months while its eyes, legs, and fur develop, and then he or she makes its way out of the pouch onto his or her mother's back and just rides on mom's back as Joey continues to be nursed by mother with her milk. And then after about a year, she or he is pretty much fully weaned and is off on its own. Fully grown koalas weigh about 20 pounds. Peter, koalas have litters of babies like dogs and cats. True or false? I'm going to say, let's see, I'm going to say yes, more than one. False. Ah. One baby at a time. Mm. Koalas live in packs. True or no, false? No, no. I'm going to say no. False. They prefer to live alone. That's right. Koalas spend most of their lives in trees. The only food koalas eat are yeah. eucalyptus leaves, fruit and nuts, insects and rodents. Oh, I believe those eucalyptus. Eucalyptus, is that? Am I saying that right? Eucalyptus leaves. That's yes. correct. The only food koalas eat, which happens to be poisonous to most animals, are eucalyptus leaves. Koalas have certain bacteria in their stomachs to help detoxify the chemical toxins in the leaves and helps with the digestion process. They eat about a pound of leaves per day. There are different varieties of eucalyptus leaves in the wild, and each koala acquires a taste for a specific variety by adulthood. And koalas don't need to drink much water. They obtain most of their water from the leaves. So they spend most of their lives in trees, and they need lots of trees and lots of space to keep them happy and healthy. Other than in zoos, koalas are only found where? I'm going to say Australia. Correct. The estimated lifespan of a koala in the wild is about 13 to 18 years, but their lifespan is beginning to decline because their habitat is disappearing. As of 2015, the Australian Koala Foundation estimates that there are less than 80,000 koalas left, with the possibility of that number being as low as 43,000. Koalas are not officially classified as endangered, but the Australian koala population has dropped by 90 percent in less than a decade so they are definitely threatened wow. their population is shrinking due to the destruction of their natural habitat i read 80 percent of their habitat has been destroyed so we're just cutting down all their eucalyptus trees mm. very sad yes i've heard this story before you know Habit habitat loss yes many times yeah okay so What's my score on oh, this pop quiz? You got 50% right. What would that be in, in a math class? Like a C minus? In most colleges, that would be a A minus. 50% equals A minus these days. Right. Well, you certainly weren't prepared. Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus. 
What's the plural of eucalyptus? Eucalypti? Eucalyptuses? Mm. 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 What do you have there, Peter? Lori, I have a little study from the Pew Research Center that has to do with the views of various groups of people about how they feel about animals and scientific research. Very interesting topic to our listeners. Yes. Overall, among U.S. adults, 52% oppose the use of animals in scientific research and 47% favor it. Wow, I'm surprised that about half of the adult population is in favor of experimentation with animals. I don't know if I'm surprised by that or not, but I'll tell you there is also a wide gender gap. Among men, 58% approve. And among women, overall, 36% approve. Right, because we're more sensitive and compassionate and smarter. They also split it out among those with various degrees of science knowledge. They've got this little test. And uh, among those with high scientific knowledge, 63% approve. Wow. Among those with medium scientific knowledge, 44% approve. And among those with low scientific knowledge, 37% approve. There you go. No, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's the survey results for now. Well, that doesn't make sense to me because scientifically knowledgeable people ought to know the limitations of animal research and how it's not applicable in many cases to humans. Oh, and I've got one more element of this in case you were wondering if there's a partisan difference in the survey results. And the answer is no. Whether you're Republican or Independent or Democrat, the results stay about the same. Interesting. Yep. Peter, there's an animal shelter in a very small town in Arkansas doing something very cute to boost their adoptions. So the way most shelters or foster care individuals market adoptable animals on Facebook is by simply putting up a picture and description of the dog or cat, right? Well, one of the workers at the shelter thought it would be a good idea to put live video on Facebook with him and the dog dressed up in matching costumes. And the costumes range from superheroes to well-known pop stars. And I will tell you, these are not only generating a lot of attention, but according to this guy who is appearing on the videos, nine out of 10 times the animal on the video is adopted or a rescue group comes in and gets the animal out of there. More than 33,000 people like the shelter's Facebook page, which is more than the population of West Memphis, which is the name of the city in Arkansas. So the video I saw, he was dressed up like Princess Leia, and the dog is Yoda, and another one where he's dressed up as Batman, and the dog is Supergirl. And the guy sings or just does some cute little performance as he's standing there holding the dog or standing with the dog, and it sure seems to be working. That's really great, Lori. Please don't volunteer me, though. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Keep your best friend cool during the dog days of summer with the inflatable pet float from Pool Candy. Your furry friend will be feeling and looking cool when they relax with you on this comfortable inflatable pool float made just for dogs. The unique design of the inflatable pet float has two holes at the bottom that allow fresh water to flow into the base, keeping your pet cool in the summer sun. Made of heavy-duty, puncture-resistant PVC, that's the inflatable pet float from Pool Candy.